All right, if you're standing, go ahead and find uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we're starting a new series called Writing Home. And what we're going to be doing over the next uh, several weeks, uh, these letters that were written, New Testament letters, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit to churches in specific situations, uh, so many of them contain words directly to the family. And we're going to look at some of those key passages where the New Testament writers, those letters that were written in the New Testament were addressing the home. And so we'll title this, Writing Home. And if there's ever been a time in this nation where the family needs to know what God has to say to us, it's today. And uh, so I pray that you will uh, follow along with me this morning, allow the Holy Spirit to work in your life and in your home. And uh, so much to say feel like so, uh, so vital to this nation, to our church, to this community right now. You found your place there, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Let's read the first seven verses, and then we'll look at much of the chapter together. About the things you wrote, he says, it is good for a man not to have relations with a woman, but because of sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman should have her own husband. A husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. A wife does not have authority over her own body. And before you amen too loud, men, where it says, but her husband does, equally, can we say that word together? Equally. Now, I don't believe in sameness. I'm, I'm glad God made us different, praise the Lord. But he also made us both in his image, equal before him. And so, equally, a husband does not have authority over his own body, but his wife does. So she told you this week, I own you. Better listen. He says, do not deprive one another except when you agree for a time to devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again, otherwise Satan may tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all people were just like me, but each has his own gift from God, one this and another that. Father, Lord, give us understanding uh, of the value that your word places on marriage and sexuality, these wonderful things that you created that the devil himself would love to pervert and distort. Lord, help us to experience your grace where we need grace, restoration where we need restoration. Lord, for many of us, we just are, are biblically illiterate when it comes to what your word says on the home. So give us wisdom and understanding and a, a fresh filling of your Holy Spirit and the power to live it out, to model to this world the gospel of Christ, even with our marriage, with our family. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. I read about an older couple celebrating their 50th wedding anniversary, and so they went back to the hotel where they had spent their honeymoon at a resort uh, some 50 years ago, they'd been so excited about this opportunity. Now in their 70s, this older couple is there, and they're talking about all these memories. And, and she said, remember, remember how you just caressed my hand? And so he reached over, and he started to caress her hand. And she thought, well, that was pretty cool. Remember how you used to just kind of brush my hair? So he went and got her hair brushed, and he started to brush her hair. And she goes, how you would just give me a soft kiss on the cheek. And so he just leaned over and he gave her a 
soft kiss on the cheek, and then she got real kind of intimate and just looked at him and said, remember when we were young, and Alder, remember how you used to, to nibble at my ear? And as soon as, soon as she said that, he got up and he headed for the door. And she, she thought, oh, no, I've offended, I've upset him. It's just, I should, I should have never said that. We're in our 70s. And, I, and, and, and so she said, where are you going, baby? And he said, I left my teeth in the car. I'll be right back. <laughs> well, I'm glad the Bible is not afraid. I'm glad God was not hesitant to address human sexuality, marriage, and those things that we tend to need a lot of wisdom when it comes to even intimacy. And some of you have been married 50 years, are close to it, coming up on that. Uh, The New Testament letters all address the home, at least indirectly, if not directly, because they were not just to live their Christian faith out at church, it was to be lived out in life, and uh, certainly in the home. In some passages, more directly and specifically, and we'll be looking at those passages, predominantly those sections in the weeks ahead. And this is perfectly in line with the mission of our church, which is to, in many ways, equip the home. You know, my heartbeat as a pastor has always been to let's give discipleship and evangelism and as much of the responsibilities of local church as we can to the family because, yes, we want this church to be a lighthouse in our community, but if that's going to be the case, we can't be uh, living in hypocrisy outside of the walls of this church. Each home represented here this morning needs to be a lighthouse for the glory of God. So we want to look at those passages when it comes to marriage and family and parenting and reconciliation. We're going to start this morning with some foundational truths And hang on, because we're going to get a lot more specific along the way. We'll see that some passages begin to get very practical. I do believe this will be practical this morning, but it is very foundational. So I want you to keep coming back so that you get in on some of the the very practical elements to help your spiritual journey, your marriage, your family be all that it can be for the glory of God. There will be some overlap. There will be some repetition as we work through the New Testament Ladies, you know this, the men need the repetition, right? You can't just say it once and think he's got it. And so there's going to be repetition. We'll come back to those passages uh, that reiterate some of the things we even talk about this morning. With each message, though, we'll begin to get more and more practical. This morning, beginning with one of the most difficult uh, cultures, and much of the New Testament was written into this, right? Uh, Paul is answering some questions as he's writing the church at Corinth. Remember what he said in the first verse about the things you wrote? He said, you had some questions for me. I remember when people used to have questions for the pastor. Now, I still get those from time to time. Let me just let you know you're not bothering me. I absolutely love it when I get an email or a phone call from you and you're saying, what does the Bible really teach about this and that? Because that's one aspect of the pastor's job that Google has almost done away with. And you don't know what you're going to get when you Google things sometimes. And I'm not saying that uh, you don't have the ability to discern the the good sites from the bad sites and that sort of thing. But I'm just saying, uh, let me in on the fun too sometimes. Just say, say, hey, got a a question. Received a couple of those this week. Um, how, How do you think we should respond in this particular situation? When we look at the church at Corinth... These folks were writing from a weird pagan 
messed up, perverted culture. God had saved them, these Christians, out of some crazy stuff. They were not from a Hebraic Jewish background with an understanding of Adam and Eve and God saying, listen, the Jews who had it all when it came to the revelation of God in the law and how God would provide and protect for marriage and family, they still got involved in some crazy things, did they not? I mean, Solomon, the, the wisest one that ever lived, violated Scripture when he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. So even with the revelation of God, they were still kind of messed up. But now we have people being saved out of this Roman culture that have been involved in extreme types of sexual perversion on a daily basis, all kinds of views of marriage. Most Christians were not from the freed class. They were involved in forced living together arrangements and situations, which sometimes had led to common law marriages, not like seven years where we have it today, but after one year of living together, they had um, been in this common law arrangement, so they were married. Sometimes one of them got saved, but the other one had not come to faith, and so what were they supposed to do in that situation, and uh, how were they to deal with their past, and so what if we had done a, a lot of crazy things before we understood God's truth on the issue? There were wealthy believers that might have had some elaborate weddings. Many of them arranged as well. Some believed, some did not. Uh, there were people that still had concubines during this time. And so just a, a lot of weird, strange activity. Now a new faith this belief in Jesus has introduced them to a Judeo-Christian concept, what we would call biblical marriage, one man for one woman for a lifetime, and they're going, man, we got some issues. We've got some baggage. And, and folks, we all come here this morning thinking, we've got some baggage we wish we didn't have. And so let's be grateful for the grace of God that speaks into situations like this. If you're sitting here, and, and I struggle as a pastor sometimes because I realize that we all come from different uh, places emotionally and spiritually and from our past experiences. And so a lot of us sit here and we think that the families all around us have it all together. They don't. We all need the grace of God and God's intervention, God to help us deal with the situation we are in today and say, God, what is your grace for today? And from this day forward, how can I commit to not settle for less than your standard, your best, your provision for my life? So some of them had gone as far as to say all this stuff is just so messed up that sex and marriage is just, it's all evil. Forget it. And so shouldn't we just be single and not have anything to do with sexual relations or marriage or any of that stuff? It's just all wrong. There was a group of um, early so-called Christians in the first centuries of the church. Some of you heard, them, heard of them. They were the shakers. And uh, they just said, hey, sexuality is sinful, Period. Forget it. Obviously, they weren't around very long. <laughs> and so they, um, they died out rather quickly. Paul writes the letter, assuming these questions, and the answers about three areas we'll address this morning. The single life, married life, and single again. And uh, there's a word for all of us here, and I pray, and my prayer this week Conversations with others is that I would not hesitate 
to preach to you the truth of God's word, but that I would not fail to let that truth be seasoned with grace so that we can all be brought closer to Jesus and walk in what he has for us from this day forward. Number one, this morning, let's start with looking at the practical motivations for single life. Practical motivations for single life. We do have in our church this morning some people that have reached adult age that are still single, and we do have people that are single again, be it that they were um, divorced or widowed or widowers. So are there some practical motivations for the single life? They're writing, and they're asking a question about that. Wouldn't it, wouldn't it just be good? And he says, yes, you can say that it is good to not have sexual relations, speaking to the men with women, and we would consider the same vice versa. And then there's kind of a big in the rest of the text, if you can be this way. It's not exclusively good. It's not the only standard, and you need to know some things about what God created marriage for. But yeah, if you can handle the single life and enjoy it, then great. Because of the current circumstances that you find yourself in in the world in the first century, it might be a good thing for you to remain single. So yeah, that, that can be a good thing. But then what did we read after that? Because of sexual immorality, some of you need to get married because marriage is the context that God created for sexual intercourse, sexual relations. That is to be inside of the bonds of marriage. And if you are married, then you are to fulfill that duty within marriage. It is not sinful or wrong for sensuality to take place for pleasure among married people. And so some of you, he would say, need to enjoy that within your marriage, and others need to uh, get married before you pursue that kind of relationship. And, uh, but however, know this that if you don't get married, you don't have to worry about somebody else having a controlling influence, an authoritative influence in your life. Because once you get married, husband, you belong to her. Wife, you belong to him. So once you get married, when it comes to how you live out your life, yes, a lot of it's between you and God. Obviously, that's where it starts because you give yourself as the temple of the Holy Spirit to God first and foremost to a life of holiness. But if you are married, you've got somebody else to consider in every decision you make from this point on. You belong to each other. So this whole idea of, well, we're married, but we're independent, we kind of do our, uh uh-uh. We're married, but, you know, that's her money and this is my money. We're married, that's her stuff, this is my... Once you get married, that's over with. The two have become one, and you belong to each other. So he's saying that's a practical motivation for some of you. You're not ready for that. Enjoy being single. And then in verse 7, he says, some simply have a gift. He says, each has his own gift. I wish you were like me. Paul was at a place, even though many scholars believe he had been previously married, and whether that was ended by divorce or the death of a spouse, he was saying, I'm in a place now where where God has just made it where I don't desire those things, nor do I desire to be married. And and it'd be great in the current world in which we live if, if all of you were that way, if that's your gift. And so he speaks of this motivation for single living being some, something some are gifted with. For others, it's a, kind of a calling or a cross that they're called to bear. Because what does he say in verse 8? I say to the unmarried and to the widows, 
It is good for them if they remain as I am. Verse 9, but if they do not have self-control. In other words, if they don't have the gift of celibacy to not desire those things. And and let me say something that I shared with our college students this morning, and, and I hope this is a word of wisdom for somebody here this morning. Sometimes in the culture we live in today, even in Christian homes, if somebody does have that gift, we act like there's something wrong with them. And there is nothing wrong with that person. When I was in student ministry, if there was something that would drive me crazy, it was parents who would speak to somebody as young as their middle school years and say, why don't you have a girlfriend yet? Why don't you have a boyfriend yet? And as they get a little bit older, somebody would say, well, he don't like girls. He must be gay. What an emotionally devastating thing and sometimes a a word that can lead somebody down a sinful path that they never intended to go down when God had actually given them a, a gift of celibacy just not to desire those things. And so if that's a gift, celebrate that gift. And parents, certainly, certainly don't start asking little boys and little girls, where's your boyfriend or where's your girlfriend or why don't you have one? You don't understand the emotional pressure. Well, you probably do because you were there too when you were young. The emotional pressure we put on the next generation when we say things like that. Help them until it's time. Listen, what did the Song of Solomon say? Don't awaken love until it's time. Until it's that time, don't put that kind of pressure on young people. That's, that's extra. That's free this morning, not part of the passage. But um, it always drives me crazy when kids are pushed in that direction, even in Christian homes way too early. But if they do not have self-control, if they don't have the gift, they should marry. For it's better to marry than to burn with desire. Better to marry than to burn with desire. Listen, sometimes it may seem like, well, these young people want to rush into marriage and all of that. I know that's true. But sometimes these young people want to wait too long before they get married. What do I mean by that? Listen, I'm one, if there's ever a parent that wants to say, you know, it's important to get an education, it's important to be financially stable, get all of that in order. And when you get your whole life in order, then get married, right? It's what a lot of us want. Be financially stable, get a good education. But it says here it's better to marry. That some of us are more concerned with our kids' financial stability and their education than we are with their moral purity. And we should, as parents, say, listen, your personal holiness is more important than your education. Your personal holiness is more important than financial stability. And so if that means you get married young, get married young. You can be young and poor. Listen, I've got a son who's there right now. You can be young and poor and happy and holy. And I had rather live in poverty and holiness than in wealth apart from God. And so some of us parents may need to have some talks with their kids and say, listen, I know I've always encouraged education and work and stability, and when you get it all in order. Listen, how many of you would have to say this morning, if I'd have waited until I got it all together, I'd have never gotten married? Yeah, you, you know Tina and I are in that camp. And so teach them the principles of holiness. If they don't have the gift, then it's just not practical. Remember a guy was with all of his buddies, and they were getting married, and he said, I'm single. He said, I, I just want you to know I, I'm single by choice. And everybody looked at him and said, really? Single by choice? And he 
pulled out his wallet and had all these pictures, and he said, yep, it was her choice, her choice, her choice, her choice, her choice. He knew he didn't have the gift, right? He says, marriage is not a requirement. There are some practical motivations. He addresses the single, even the previously married. If you go all the way down to verses 32 through 35, In this text, I want you to be without concerns. An unmarried man is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. It's not saying if you're married, you quit being concerned about those things. He's saying you don't have to consider anybody else and where you're going to, you know, you want to go on a mission trip, go on a mission trip. You don't have to bounce it off your wife. But a married man is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. Got to worry about keeping that job, right? Keeping food coming. And he is divided. An unmarried woman or a virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord so that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. He says, now I'm saying this for your own benefit, not to put a restraint on you, but because of what is proper and so that you may be devoted to the Lord without distraction. He goes on to explain, actually back in verse 26 He said, what sets up a lot of this, hey, if you can stay single and enjoy it, then stay single and enjoy it. What sets up a lot of that, he says, is because of the current distress. The church was under such persecution. It would be like sometimes that that young man who's going off, he he, he got drafted to to go fight a war, and he's getting ready to go off to war, and he says, but I want to get married before I go. And somebody would say, wait a minute, Uh, and I know this was said a lot before World War II in Vietnam and other times, they said, I know you want to hurry up and get married before you go, but you, may, you might just want to wait because these are dangerous times. And so Paul is saying because of the persecution the church was under, if you can enjoy being single and not distracted and not have to have those responsibilities, then great. If you're single and gifted, enjoy it. Don't worry about the stereotypes or what people call you for enjoying that. Enjoy it and serve the Lord with it. Give yourself to the Lord. Serve others. If you're single and not gifted, still serve the Lord. Pray for a spouse. Another thing we spoke about with the college students this morning was you go ahead and walk the narrow road with Jesus because the person you want to marry, you want to meet them on that narrow road, right? You don't want to meet them on the broad road that leads to destruction and then try to drag them over to the narrow road. That's why the Bible says not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. So you walk hand in hand with Jesus and you say, Jesus, I'm going to trust you. You bring the right one across my path on the narrow road and help me discern when they're the right one. And a lot of us had a lot of grace, God's grace to help us in that process. Single and not gifted, serve the Lord. Pray for that spouse. Be God-dependent, not codependent upon people so that together one day you can be interdependent, working together, being more for God together than you ever could be apart. Learn to walk with him, not, push, not pushing people away, but saying, God, I'm waiting on your calling on my life when it comes to marital relations. Now, that's some practical motivations for the single life or in this passage, and some people are called to that, but we also have some purposeful mandates for married life. He wasn't saying the marriage option is not a good option. Paul knew the scriptures, right? He knew uh, the Old Testament foundations, not just the law itself, because Marriage and family go way back before Moses brought to us the law, back to creation itself. Before God created a people for himself called Israel, a covenant people, 
before there was a church or Israel, before there was um, religious institutions, there was a home. Before there was government institutions, right? There was a home. There was a man and a woman, and Jesus spoke to that. Paul understood that. And so, going back to verses 2 and 3, he's saying sexual intimacy was made for that marriage. That within that context, like a fire in a fireplace in your home, if you see a fire outside of that fireplace, it's a bad thing, right? But a fire in the fireplace, it's a good thing. In its context, he's saying that's the context. That's not the only purpose. We're told in Scripture that marriage, one of the purposes of marriage is to be a little picture of the big picture. Marriage is to, in the Old Testament, it was always God, Jehovah God, and Israel. Marriage was a picture of covenant faithfulness between God and Israel. So the husband was a picture of God's covenant faithfulness. Hosea illustrated that when he went after Gomer and he redeemed her and he bought her back. And so covenant faithfulness between God and Israel was to be pictured in marriage. In the New Testament, that covenant is still pictured in marriage. We'll get to that in Ephesians chapter 5 later. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Wives are to respect and, and respond to the husband in the same way the church is to Christ. And so one of the biggest and, and I think most foundational purposes of marriage was that it was a little picture of the big picture that people look at your life and your marriage and see what a covenant relationship and they know what the love of God is all about. Later in this series when we look at passages to children, I'll come back to this and say, listen, parents, the most important thing you can do for your kids is not directly to them, but the way you love each other, the way a husband and wife love each other is the, the greatest ability they can bring into the life of a child. And so the picture of covenant love. Uh, another purpose was companionship and teamwork. When they come together, that they realize that God said in the beginning, it's not good that man dwell alone. I'll give him a helpmate, both created in the image of God, to come together as a team to serve the Lord as a team. And so companionship and teamwork, procreation, kids need a family. Kids need a father and a mother, right? And and so there are certain things that the father communicates, certain things that the mother communicates as they work together as a team. That's the context that God established the home. But also, in the midst of all that, according to this chapter, physical oneness that enhances spiritual and emotional oneness, Because you can't bond physically without there also being a spiritual and emotional connection. That's why the Bible is so clear on being the covenant relationship with marriage because when you're not in the covenant relationship called marriage, you are creating with that physical intimacy also an emotional and a spiritual intimacy. I even warn teenagers and those that are seriously approaching maybe that stage of being ready to be engaged Listen, don't even be so spiritual when you're alone together. You're like, what? You're telling teenagers who are dating not to be so? Listen, when when a couple at age 15 or 16 are holding hands and praying together all the time, they're developing spiritual intimacy. That spiritual intimacy will want to be followed by physical intimacy. That's why some of the most devastating things that have ever happened among teenagers have happened uh, during youth revivals and youth camps and youth retreats because they have such an emotional high with somebody else, and then they become tired and unguarded later that night. And so spiritual intimacy with somebody of the opposite sex can lead to wanting to follow up with physical intimacy. It's all so uniquely tied that we have to be careful about that. 
Now, it's important, verse 5 of this text. Let's go back. He says, do not deprive one another except when you agree for a time. So he's saying, don't just get married for this reason, but make sure that it is a big part of your marriage. And so there are some purposes that drive us to say marriage is a good and a wonderful thing. Don't get married for the wrong reasons. Don't, don't start looking for reasons outside of this. Don't be like the man who uh, was 67 years old. He married a 23-year-old young lady. And some of his friends were like, man, your wife is beautiful, young. You're 67. How in the world did you convince her to marry an old geezer like you? And he said, I lied about my age. And they were sitting there thinking, you lied about your age? How'd you get away with that? He goes, man, I told her I was 87. <laughs> she thought she was going, he was, he was wealthy, by the way. She thought she was going to come into some riches sooner than she was going to. Don't marry for the wrong reason. I heard of one guy who said, I've been trying so hard to remarry my ex-wife so I could well, she figured it out. You're just trying to get your money back. And so don't marry or rebury for the wrong reasons. Be sure it goes back to that being a picture. You really want to be a witness for Christ, companionship, teamwork. I ask couples in premarital counseling, what makes you think you're going to be better together than you ever would be apart? You need to be able to answer that question. What's going to make you stronger for Jesus together? And usually they can answer that by what's happening throughout their courtship and engagement because if, listen, if, if a young man or a young lady maybe 17, 18, 20, 22 years old, however old, if a young man or young lady gets involved in a dating relationship and all of a sudden you don't see them passionate about the things of God as they used to be, I already know that's not the one. That's not the one. It's pulling them away from God rather than bringing them to God. So how are you going to be stronger as a team? What about companionship, teamwork? What, what are you, what's your vision for family? And then physical oneness falls into that as well. That's why verse 2 calls sex outside of marriage immoral because it's binding the heart and soul with the wrong motives and outside of the covenant relationship. It distorts the gospel. It deprives people of God's best. And Paul will tell the Thessalonians, as we'll see later, it defrauds your brother in this matter because you're taking uh, something that does not belong to you. Even before marriage, it could belong to somebody else later. And in marriage, adultery and things like that, it's robbing and defrauding a brother in the matter, or a sister in the matter. So they were asking then, well, what about the roots of our marriage? You know, we come out of this culture, we've already just messed all this up, and it was kind of forced on. We didn't see it come. We had no clue of the gospel. What, what about our current situations? Where do we go from here? Today, a lot of you might be asking, boy, a lot of things I didn't know in the past, a lot of things I didn't understand, and what about where I go from here? What do I do in this current situation I find myself in? Uh, look with me down at verses 10 through 14. He says, I command the married, not I but the Lord. A wife is not to leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And the husband is not to leave his wife. To the rest, I, not the Lord, say, if a brother has an unbelieving wife, and she is willing to live with him, he must not leave her. So don't, don't get divorced just because you're, you were unequally yoked or became unequally yoked because one of you got saved. 
Also, if any woman has an unbelieving husband, and he is willing to live with her, she must not leave her husband. For the unbelief, unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife. The unbelieving wife is sanctified by the Christian husband. He's not saying they're saved, but he's saying, listen, they're children, otherwise your children would be unclean. He says, you don't have to worry that this is a pagan household just because one of you hasn't come to the faith yet. You're still praying that they'll come to faith in Christ. We'll also see that repeated when we get to what Peter had to say, especially about what wives with unbelieving husbands, which tends to be the case more often than husbands having unbelieving wives. Also, don't get confused of the language here. When he says, hey, this isn't me talking here, this is the Lord, and later he comes back and says, this is uh, not the Lord but me, it's not saying, as I've heard some people try to interpret as, okay, right here this is inspired by the Holy Spirit, and so what Paul is saying comes from God, and the rest of what Paul had to say is just a personal opinion, and we can throw that out. That's not what he's saying in the text, because later on he would say, I believe I have the Spirit in this matter. In other words, he was even grasping something of biblical inspiration. What he's saying is, listen, we already know when Jesus, the Lord, walked on this earth, he addressed part of this. Now let me address the rest of this. Let me explain some things maybe of how the Old Testament is fulfilled with an understanding of gospel implications that you haven't heard from Matthew chapter 19, which they didn't number the chapters yet, but from the scroll of Matthew they had not heard everything that Paul had to say, but they had certainly heard part of this that they had heard that it's not good that man dwell alone, right? That God created a helpmate. They had understood that, or at least Paul had understood and would pass on that Adam had said when he saw Eve, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Or Proverbs 18, 22, he who finds a wife finds a good thing. That Ruth was overcome by the romance of a kinsman redeemer that had noticed her, he said, Boaz noticed her with his eyes and was such a gracious gentleman and a picture of the redeeming love of Jesus Christ in her life that that was a good thing in Scripture. It was a beautiful thing. In fact, it's been said that Boaz was quite ruthless until that happened. Some of you will catch that a little bit later. And so that was a good thing. And he says, so listen, there's some redeeming value to marriage, and even if your spouse is not a believer, that's not grounds to just kind of say, well, they're not a Christian. I'm going to find me somebody who is. It's not, not a grounds there. So you want to win them through your love for Christ and your service to them. Now, are there provisional measures for divorce and remarriage? The answer, Yes. Not that you should be looking for those right off. And so we want to keep that in mind with the context of Scripture too. Uh, Jesus talked about the hardness of the heart, and we'll touch on that. But what are the provisional measures according to this chapter? First, he references the words of the Lord going back to verse 10 when he says the Lord. Well, what did Jesus say in Matthew chapter 19? He said you shouldn't divorce your wife for just any reason. But if it's because of sexual unfaithfulness, sexual immorality, if it's, if it's because of an adulterous relationship, that you're no longer bound. But then in, in verse 15, 
Paul says, I want you to be aware of something that may not fall in that same context. He says, if the unbeliever leaves, let him leave. You can't force them into a relationship. A brother or sister is not bound in such cases. God has called you to peace. And so, obviously, sexual immorality is grounds for divorce, not requirement for divorce. And there are many testimonies of how God has redeemed marriages even from affairs. And I would tell people, at first and foremost, do all you can to say, God, is this beyond reconciliation? Because with God, all things are possible. God, do what only you can do in this situation. However, this person who seeks a divorce after marital unfaithfulness is not bound to the single life if they so choose remarriage. And then, in verse 15 here, he talks about the abandonment of an unbelieving spouse. Not that you seek it. He's already given us plenty of scriptures. Even in verse 16, he says, for you, wife... How, how do you know whether you would save your husband or you husband? How do you know whether you would save your wife? You have an unbelieving spouse. You do all that you can to try to win them to Christ. You're the greatest missionary in their life, and your love can minister to them. So we're going to get into very practical ways in the weeks ahead of how an unbelieving spouse can be witnessed to by a believing spouse because we want to equip believers to do that. However, if the unbeliever abandons the believing spouse, then you're not bound anymore. And then finally, and I want to add this to it, and I really prayed about this big time, but it's been a big subject later, and I feel like it needs to be addressed. What do you do in an abusive situation? I don't mean when somebody just blew it once. You know, somebody yelled, got mad, got emotionally abusive or, or whatever, uh, acted violent once. I, I'm, I'm talking about an, emotion, uh, an emotionally or physically abusive situation that continues. And all I can do is share what I know from Scripture. Psalm 11 and verse 5 says, God hates the violent and the abusive. God hates the violent and the abusive. And it's happening all over our world, and so many times it's hidden and it's in secret. Not only does the Bible say that, and I believe you must be safe, the first thing you should do, anybody under the sound of my voice, and you're like, well, Pastor, you just don't even know. You just don't even know. First and foremost, you get yourself in a safe situation. Get your, you tell somebody, look, I am in an extreme emotionally abusive or physically abusive situation. Tell somebody. Get yourself in a safe place. God hates the violent and the abusive. And so you don't have to stay in that situation. If someone, however, is continually and habitually violent and physically and emotionally abusive, according to 1 John, according to the authority of God's Word and what 1 John says about willful, continual sin and disobedience, it, it, it wasn't just they made a mistake they had their blow-up or whatever. They are continually abusive. The Bible says they can't be saved. He's saying if we willfully and continually continue in sin, then that's evidence. First John was written to be evidence of whether these things are written, First John 5, 13, that you may know that you have eternal life. First John was written to show you evidence of genuine conversion. And so if somebody is continually, habitually involved in sin that God hates, 
without reformation, without repentance, without conviction of the Holy Spirit and brokenness, then that person can't be saved. And if they're separating the marriage because of their violence, something that I have learned, listen, as a young man in the ministry, I didn't get this, but I've seen too much now, and and God has shown me some things in his word. That separation is, in these situations, necessary for the safety of a woman or children. And in those cases where the no repentance, then by default, there's been abandonment. It's not what we should look for. It's not what we should seek. But sometimes, by default, to be away from the one that would bring the abuse, it happens. And we need to love those in that situation and help them when there's adultery, when there's abandonment, when there's abuse. So kind of to recap here, what what is he saying here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 to the single again, if it's a a no-fault divorce or if you would have to say (laughs) it was really my fault or both of our faults, well, then a verse 11 says, then pray God restores it, right? Until you're reconciled, pray God restores it. Stay single. Tells you again and again, just stay single. Don't remarry. The one who remarries in those situations, he says, you're forcing someone else into adultery. You're bringing the end to something God could have done. So there's a lot of different situations we have to keep in mind when we read these passages. But if betrayed by adultery, abandonment, or abuse, the single life may be good for a while. You're not bound to that anymore. There was a Christian lady. I'll close with this story. A Christian lady told the testimony about her husband and how he used to party with his friends all the time. He'd have them over to the house to play poker and to drink and smoke and clutter the house up. Their mouths were sometimes filthy. He would say, hey, babe, get me this. Babe, get me that. She was a Christian lady surrounded by this environment on a pretty regular basis, praying for her husband. One of the men came to her. His wife had actually left her and said, "Why why do you stay with this man? Why do you put up with this? He just comes in and wrecks the house. You clean up after him. You cook his meals. You show him love. Why do you do all of this? And she said, because I used to be lost too. She said, I didn't know Jesus. I I was headed to a devil's hell, and uh, I used to party with him. That was my lifestyle. And either he's going to get saved or he's not. She goes, if he doesn't, then this is the best he'll ever have it. And I'm going to give him some love and some comfort this side of eternity because in eternity he'll suffer forever. I was saved out of that, but I'm praying God will save him out of that. Not long after that, she said that friend went and told the husband what she had said. He came broken and in tears gave his life to Jesus. God saved him. 
she was patient. That's the way God would love to see it happen. You would say, we've got all kinds of baggage. Listen, God's grace is strong enough to carry that baggage. In fact, much of it is already under the blood of Jesus, so you need to just let it go. What your question today is, friend, is how do I make sure I'm walking with God? How do I make sure from this day forward I do it God's way? So I'm excited about the weeks ahead because we're going to get into some very practical ways for you to make the most out of the situation you find yourself in with marriage and family today. How do you start from this point on? Would you bow your heads with me this morning?